It's starting. Welcome back. It's good to see you all again. Um, last week, as we listened to Zechariah chapter 12, uh, we discussed the main options for interpreting really the last three chapters of the book. And the three main options are these. First, Zechariah is referring to uh, Jews who are going to convert to Christ sometime shortly after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, second, that it applies to the church, that is the entire church age. And that interpretation would take all those references to the house of David, the tribes, and so on, as Old Testament references to the people of God. And the people of God are now the Christian church. And the third interpretation is that it refers to ethnic Jews close to the end of history who are going to be converted and become true Christians. In fact, they're going to be done in a pretty dramatic way. Um, and so um, what I want to remind you before we look at those options, or at least to state where I stand on those options, is to remember that from Zechariah's point of view, that is the people of his day, all these things were in the distant future to them. Hundreds of years later, Christ would come. That means that while it's naturally of interest to us that um, we want to sort out when these things get fulfilled, from Zechariah's point of view, it's all future. Uh, that suggests that the actual importance of Zechariah's prophecy, which has to apply to the original audience, the actual importance of it isn't really determined by whether or not we sort this out. So it is natural enough for us to want to do that. It fits into our world. Uh, but let's not lose sight of the fact that the big message of what the Lord is saying to Zechariah is going to mean the same thing, no matter which of these options you take. In the big scheme, there are a few nuances that are different in terms of how we interpret God's relationship to the ethnically Jewish people. Um, for a variety of reasons, I believe that the third option is the best option. That is that this is ultimately going to find its fulfillment in ethnic Jews who gather together in a public way so that we can observe it, who are per both persecuted and dramatically converted to Christ close to the end of history. This is somewhere around a third, maybe a little bit more of that, maybe 40% of reform commentators take that approach. I think the majority of reform commentators tend to think it applies just to the church more broadly. But last week I left out something that I think is actually pretty helpful in us being able to point in that direction of my minority view, uh, which is this refers to ethnic Jews. And so I wanna go back there uh, would you turn your Bibles with me to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 6? So just back up to the last chapter. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 6. We read this. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So we begin with that time marker on that day. We're going to see that marker three more times in Zechariah chapter 13. So it's, it's marking all these things together as being uh, one big package deal, as it were, on that day. Last week, we discussed how this verse cannot be referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That would have been a very natural thing to think. We have 
the enemies of Israel surrounding Jerusalem. Uh, but the problem with that is, is in Zechariah's prophecy, it's the nations who are destroyed. And in 70 AD, it's Jerusalem and the people of Judea who are destroyed. So that can't work. What I failed to point out is the line at the end of this verse, at the end of verse 6. Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Just two thoughts about that. First of all, I have no idea how you can make that fit with it applying to the Christian church, that Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Uh, I can't find any commentaries, uh, commentators who actually take that view and explain how this verse fits with it. But second, Jerusalem was inhabited by Jews in Zechariah's day. It was inhabited by Jews in Zechariah's day all the way through the time of Christ. And in fact, it's not uninhabited by Jews until Hadrian um, throws all the Jews out of Jerusalem after the Bar Kokhba re uh, revolt. That's Emperor Hadrian. And in order for it to be inhabited again, that means there has to be a time first when it's uninhabited. If we put these two facts together, uh, I think the natural conclusion is it's going to be a group of ethnic Jews who are once again going to inhabit Jerusalem, at least after 140 AD. And um, they're going to be dramatically converted in a way that people can look on to it. And if that's right, we can say the obvious. It hasn't happened yet, right? Because there is no mass conversion of Jews to Christianity in Jerusalem that's taken place yet in history. Now, I grant we do not want to be dogmatic about this, uh, but I think it does fit uh, very nicely with the interpretation uh, that I and Calvin and some other people, um, James Montgomery Boyce and so on, um, how we fit these passages together. Tonight, we're going to look at three more prophecies marked out by the temple marker on that day. And then we're going to look at a poetic section which talks about the death of the good shepherd. And we're going to see how that fits together as well. But before we do that, let's go before the throne of grace in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. And yet we confess that this portion of your word is very difficult for us to understand. And so we ask that you would grant us the humility to not go beyond um, what we can know for certain, to be willing to acknowledge that uh, parts of our interpretations are going to be um, provisional, and we're not going to build um, divisions in your church upon them. And yet we also ask that you would allow and cause the light of your word to impact our lives, that we would see the wonder of what Christ has done in greater beauty, with greater clarity, that cleanses from sin to create a people who are zealous for you and to give us a future and a hope. We ask these things in Jesus's name. Amen. Well, we begin tonight with verse one of um, Zechariah chapter 13. And in some ways, verse one may fit better with chapter 12 than it does with chapter 13. You'll probably see that in some of your translations, there's basically a break after verse one. Uh, if you think back to what we got at the end of chapter 12 of Zechariah, the Lord is talking about leading this people to repentance, right? Causing them to look upon the one whom they've pierced, Jesus, 
and um, to mourn deeply and personally. That, that's the idea of them going off by themselves. It's not a matter of show. They deeply mourn. And then that comes to verse one this evening. Would someone read just verse one for us from Zechariah 13? Anyone? I can do that. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of Jake, to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Thank you, Joe. So clearly the grace of God that led these people or leads these people to repentance is not in vain, right? They mourn out of repentance. They're sorrowful over their sin. And God says he opens up a fountain to wash away their guilt and also to wash away their impurity or their uncleanness, depending on your translations. Um, The image of a fountain suggests this is not just an isolated person here or there, but this is and this fits with the broader context, this is going to be a large group of people who are converted genuinely and washed clean. Um, uh, James Montgomery Boyce puts it like this. The people are Jews. The time is the period of the final repentance at the end of world history. That, of course, is up for debate, as is actually whether or not it's the Jews. Uh, But I do agree with him. Um, The time is the period of the final repentance at the end of the world history. And then he quotes Romans 11, 26, in which all Israel shall be saved. Personally, it makes me think of 2 Chronicles 7, 14, just in terms of the impact of it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You notice the verse ends with a promise that this fountain is going to cleanse them from sin and impurity, or sin and uncleanness. My question for you is, why does it say that? Why doesn't it just say, cleanse them from sin, but it adds from impurity or uncleanness? What's the difference? Well, they were both affected from the fall. You had uh, creation and uh, humans. Creation and humans were both affected by the fall. Yes, well, of course, we're part of creation. But why, why, why instead of saying they're going to be cleansed from their sin, period, they to be cleansed from their sin and their impurities? Does the impurities add anything extra to it? You want to give an answer? Martha's mowing. <laughs> Martha is mowing. By the way, you can't say this with dogmatic certainty because there's there's a semantic range for all these words and they can fill in a little bit differently. But let, me, let me suggest that the word sin here has the focus on guilt. They will be cleansed from their guilt. If that is correct, then they're going to be cleansed from their guilt and their impurities or their uncleanness. 
So what would impurities and uncleanness add to being cleansed from guilt? Ancillary, like touching a dead animal. Yeah, that's what. So we're kind of thinking here that kind of goes back to the Old Testament and where, um, I mean, further back in the Old Testament where, you know, there were certain things that you would do to become unclean. Mm. You know, like Martha said, touching a dead animal or like if you had leprosy or. Yeah, so I think, I think that's right. Although I don't think the ceremonial law is particularly in view here. I, I think really what he's saying is, uh, this is Zechariah, of course, saying it, is that the Lord's going to cleanse the people from their guilt and he's going to clean up their lives. That is justification and sanctification. Right? He's going to purify the people, not simply forgive them. We could say not simply forgive us. Right. If you apply this more broadly, Christians are not just forgiven. We're being sanctified and transformed into the likeness of Christ. What we're going to see here in this passage, if you follow this, is God is at work cleansing us from the guilt and power of sin. And he is creating a people who are zealous for his glory. Right. That's going to come next. Um, I think Zechariah may have had Ezekiel in mind. Keep in mind, Ezekiel is a relatively close prophet. Ezekiel prophesies during the time of the Babylonian exile, going into exile, and this is, you know, right after exile. And in um, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26, we read this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, part of the reason why I think that he may have had Ezekiel in mind, besides the fact that Ezekiel's kind of background for what Zechariah is doing, um, is in fact impurities and uncleanness are very close ideas. You can actually translate them uh, interchangeably. And the very next thing Zechariah is going to go on to do is talk about God cutting off the idols from the land. Right. So he's got both parts of this these verses from Ezekiel. Um, Here's the main point. What we can say for certain is that the Lord was promising that a day was coming when he would cleanse his people, both from the guilt and from, at least in some sense, from the power of sin, right? He's going to be at work transforming this people in the future. And that's good news. Because remember, he's tying this when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, there's going to be forgiveness, and there's going to be cleansing, and there's going to be purification of the people who are sinful in and of ourselves. Questions on that? I don't don't want to spend too much time on just one verse, but um, it does kind of introduce this, what we're looking at tonight, and rounds off what we were looking at last week. I'll go with silence being consent. Uh, would someone read verses two and three for us? Verses two, oh no, verses two through five. I think I want to have someone read verses two through five together. And then we'll come back and look at it in smaller bits. Two through five. I can do that. Thank you, Ray. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, 
I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets of the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. Thank you, Ray. Um, so what this passage is describing is the tremendous zeal that these converted Jews, my interpretation, uh, these converted Jews are going to have for the glory of God in that day, right? They don't just go, hey, I'm forgiven, great, right? They're going to be very zealous for the Lord their God. And, and Zechariah singles out two particular sins that plagued Israel prior to the Babylonian captivity, idolatry and false prophecy, right? Those are the two. So first of all, what's an idol? Anyone at all? What's an idol? Something you worship that isn't God or something you put ahead of God. It sort of yeah. takes the place of... Right. Yeah, right. That's, that's right. So I, I like that. Right? <laughs> Those two parts of it. Because sometimes people won't necessarily think of their idols as something they worship. So an idol can be something you worship. It can be people bowing down to false gods. But also quite commonly, and I think this is more common in our own day, it's things that people put in the place of God. Uh, I think a very helpful book, actually, by Tim Keller, um, one of his best books, is on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods. And what he does is he talks about all the things in our culture that people hold up and say, this is ultimate. Right? This is going to make you happy. This is going to make your life fulfilled. If you get enough money, fame, good looks, the, the, the right girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever it can be. And very importantly, idols can be good things. Right? We, we always naturally tend to want to start with idols are intrinsically bad. But idols can be good things, like your family, that you put in the place of God. Right? And God is saying through Zechariah, in this day, when there's this large-scale conversion, I'm going to cut off idolatry from the land. By the way, that also makes it clear he's not talking about just one or two individuals. Right? Obviously, when God converts you and gives you a heart that burns with zeal and love for him, he's cutting off idolatry in your life. But he says here he's going to cut off idolatry from the land. That suggests there's going to be a widespread conversion which of course fits with the rest of the context. So lots of questions on idolatry before we look at false prophecy. In some ways, the idolatry is straightforward. You know, it's, it's an easy concept for us to grasp, uh, but it is an important promise. And, and the people of Zechariah's day who realized they'd just been in captivity because of their idolatry, would be really encouraged to know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to cleanse the people from their guilt. He's going to cleanse people from their uh, remaining sin. Not all of it yet, but 
cleansing up our lives to sanctification. And he's going to create people who are zealous enough that they're going to cut idolatry off from the land. But what about false prophecy? Um, to state the obvious, most modern Christians don't seem to grasp how serious an issue it is to engage in false prophecy. Anybody have a definition of false prophecy? Don't make I it always, complicated. Um, I always looked at it as something, um, I was looking at, thinking back to the Pentateuch, I forget what book. But I think this isn't there something there if a prophet makes a statement and it doesn't come true, it's a false prophet. That fact is true, but that there's other ways to be a false prophet as well. So if you prophesy about the future, say, God told me that such and such is going to happen, and it doesn't happen, then we all know he was a false prophet, or she was a false prophetess. will be equal opportunity here. Women can do this too. But what is a false prophet prophecy? Um, I'm going to take another jump. <laughs> sure, go ahead, Robin. Um, there's a tendency with the false prophets, I think. Am I still here? Uh, we lost you there for a second. Yeah, sorry. Um, there's a tendency, I think, in the Old Testament with the false prophets where they always say good things are going to happen, even though the other prophet is saying repent, you know, or, or whatever. You know, like yeah. they, they, a prophet usually call for repentance. When I well, so, yeah. Rhonda, you're correct that it's common that false prophets tell people what they want to hear to gather an audience. This is particularly true around royal false prophets who tell the king how great they are. But I actually am looking for something closer to a definition. I'm still Rhonda, we're going to give someone else a chance. All right. So you could also just say, what's a true prophecy? What does it mean for someone to, be a, to speak a true prophecy? Because I was going to say it was, um, I mean, a, a, a false prophet would be speaking anything that is contrary to the word of God. And so. Not, not necessarily. Oh, okay. That's error. So if, so if someone comes out today and says, um, God thinks that two guys can marry each other. No, no, that's bad. That's a bad illustration. Um, if someone comes out and just says, I favor same-sex marriage, that's not a false prophecy. That's just error. What, what do you have to do to make a false prophecy? You have to make a claim about something, not just what that, you're saying. That you're speaking on behalf of God, but speaking falsely on behalf of God? Yeah. So anybody who claims to be speaking on behalf of God and is not speaking on behalf of God is giving a false prophecy. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Right? It could be, but it does not have to be. Now, I want to suggest that in our culture, people don't take this all that seriously. And I mean, in the church. How do I know this? I'm going to say that none of you would do this, but do you know people who make claims that God is telling them something or telling you something? I, I certainly do. I've been in worship services. I was in a worship service one time where somebody, some guy 
told me he saw a vision of a flaming sword over my head and started trying to talk about, you know, what that could mean from God. But when does it happen much more casually than that, where people almost, almost don't pay any attention to it? Come on, you're all very bright. When people make a decision and in order to justify it, they, they somehow say God is leading them in that direction. Jenny, that's exactly it. The Lord is leading me to. Uh, the Lord told me, actually, sometimes people even say. That's a claim that God is telling you something. God is speaking. And it's a claim that's not true. It's false prophecy. It's a pretty big deal. Now, in God's kindness, he doesn't strike us all dead. Um, but we should realize it's a very serious thing. Of course, it becomes much more problematic when people are making doctrinal claims or so on in the name of the Lord. And the um, biblical punishment for this, as Greg Bonson used to remind people, is capital punishment. Um, it was very common. I think it's not as common right now, but it's very common if you go back about 30 years ago for people in churches to be going, we have to learn how to prophesy again. And Greg Bonson used to get asked a lot, do you believe that prophecy is for today? And he always used to answer, I believe the biblical penal sanction against false prophecy is still for today. And people would get quizzical looks on their faces. And he was simply trying to drive home the point, this is a big deal. God takes it really seriously. Here's the thing to realize, though. I suspect that almost all of us found what Zechariah says next just a little bit jarring. Listen to verse 3 again. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. Did that jar any of you at all? His father and mother who bore him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Does that language remind you of anything from the Old Testament? To me, it sounds like the opposite where, oh wait, not the opposite. It sounds like the section where it's, um, I forget if it's the son who steals or the son who curses his parents is stoned at the gates. It sounds very similar to that to me. It has a bit, of, it has a bit in common with that, Rachel. So that, that's a good observation. Now, the thing there we should point out is that was talking about an adult son. This is not like bringing an eight-year-old that's being misbehaving to the elders to be stoned. Um, and all, but in that case, though, they would bring their, their son to the elders uh, in the city, and the community would stone that person to death. I think this is even more graphic, the idea that their father and their mother will pierce them. I have a very specific uh, image in the Old Testament, but it may not strike any of you. It's not, it's not a direct connection. Rachel made a very good connection between the parents and the child. I'm not thinking a parent and child issue, but this idea of piercing through out of zeal for the glory of God. Nobody ever names their kid Phineas anymore. Okay, so in the book of Numbers, we're told that God sends a pestilence on the people 
because um, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And uh, some of the men are running around with pagan Canaanite women having sexual relationships with them. And so God sends this, this pestilence on the land. People are dying. And, and the elders, they gather near the tent of meeting and they're mourning and they're weeping and they're praying. And right through the camp comes this Israeli guy with a Canaanite woman. And, and, and they go into his tent together to have sex. Phineas takes a spear and goes into the tent and drives it through the two of them and pins them to the ground. I, I kind of think that relates to this in terms of the zeal for the glory of God. Um, let me uh, just ask you this question. Do you remember what the Lord thought about what Phineas did? Now that I brought up the character. It's from Numbers 25. What did the Lord think about Phineas taking a spear and driving it through this man and woman while they were having sex. Uh, no one remembers. You gotta read numbers, it's good. Uh, numbers 25, verse 10. Oop, I did that backwards. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. See, we have to think of as our natural reaction to Phineas doing that, because we're modern Westerners, is, wow, that's really, really over the top. God's response was, that's the man that's after my heart. I bless him. He, in fact, has atoned for Israel, and I'm going to stop the pestilence, because he was zealous for me, his God. Right? I think that's the image, really, that Zechariah is tagging into here. Not... That at some future date, mothers and fathers are actually literally going to have to pierce their sons with spears because they're engaging in false prophecy. I don't think that's in view at all. What Zechariah is trying to get across is, in that day, the people will be so zealous for the glory of God that they will place the glory of God even above their children. Right? I think that's really the point. Questions on that? We have the, <clears throat> don't we have the example also of Elisha and the uh, against the 450 false prophets of Baal? And oh, sure. He, and then he killed every one of them afterwards, you know, after he proved that they were false. Right, Ray, I, I agree that that's, that's something that happens with, uh, with Elijah, and it does show that God's zeal for cleansing the, um, um, his land, his people from idolatry and from false prophets. However, I think there's a pretty big difference between killing the prophets of Baal from the pagans and piercing your own son, right, uh, with a spear. I, I think this is, this is a much more vivid, much more personal issue. And it's really drawing that God's going to create a people that are very, very zealous for his glory. As I say, I don't think this means this is literally going to happen. I don't think that's necessary. It's drawing on these Old Testament images to make clear, first, 
when God opens up this fountain, he's going to cleanse people so they're forgiven of their sin, so that they're sanctified, but also so that he can create a people who are really zealous for his glory, so that idolatry gets wiped out of the land, right? The people are not going to be putting things in the place of God, and that they are so zealous for the glory of God, um, they're going to prioritize God even over their own children. I think that's really the big picture. Thoughts or questions on that? Marissa looks like she has a question. I do. And it actually goes back to the previous verse. I was going to ask it earlier, but um, when, like you saying, does anyone false, falsely prophesy? Um, when people say they have a peace about something, is, is that false prophesying? Like when people say, well, I have a peace about it. I think it's probably, I'm going to be gentle here and say it's probably just bad theology. Um, <laughs> obviously, people can bring that to false prophecy if they're saying God is telling me because I have peace about it. Um, we should remember God is very, very generous with us in our very messy, bad theology, and we ought to be generous with each other. But I do want to encourage people not to do that. And I will say that many, many people who, who have first come to our congregation they would tell me that's a normal way they would seek the will of God is they'd pray to be at peace about it, which is not in the Bible anywhere. Yeah. So you gotta be really careful with that. But, but I also think we need to be gentle in terms of how we evaluate those things. Someone coming up on TV and saying, God told me, or I, I once was in a church where someone stood up and said, um, you know, the Lord told me that uh, 10 people here are going to give a thousand dollars each to the church before we leave today. Um, well, I didn't stay around to find out whether or not that prophecy would be fulfilled, but I'm going to go with it being a false prophet, uh, false prophecy. That's really cavalier, callous stuff, and we should expect that God will ultimately judge that pretty severely. Yeah. Other thoughts or questions on the first five verses? Just remember that God never tells us to pray till we have peace about it. He does tell us to pray. By the way, I'm not saying that God doesn't guide us. God's going to guide us in lots of ways, right? He's going to do providentially. He's going to give us insight into his word. Um, what he's not going to do is whisper into your ear, right? And, and so we should not be looking for alternative ways to discovering God's will from the ones that he's actually given to us. Verse six is actually a very poignant word. Um, to the redeemed, redeemed Jews in that day. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Now we're reminded, of course, that Zechariah had said, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. I think there's a really important principle here. You can apply it more broadly than just if this is a specific group of Jews. Um, Jesus was not killed by those bad people over there. Uh, that's the point, right? They're the wounds he received in the house of his friends. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. And we shouldn't think that doesn't mean that we would have, right? When Jesus died, he died for his enemies, who he actually makes his friends. Um, when Jesus died, 
everyone stood against him, Jew and Gentile alike. So I particularly like the, the words of a, um, a fairly new hymn, which I find really moving. It's how deep the father's love for us. I haven't quoted it for a while, so tonight would be a good time to do it. Actually, I'm going to sing the, first, the middle two stanzas of this hymn for you. How deep the father's love for us. Just kidding. I'm going to read these two stanzas. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, right? My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Beloved, Jesus came to die for the people who would betray him. Jesus came to die for sinners like me and sinners like you. Remarkably, by his grace, he now calls us his friends. But if we ask the question, who killed Jesus? Part of the answer is we did, right? We did. It was my sin that held him there. Now, as we're going to see when we read the rest of the passage, there's an even more awesome explanation, answer to that question, who killed Jesus? But we ought not to imagine we're the good people and those bad people over there killed Jesus. Rather, Jesus received his wounds in the house of his friends. Thoughts or questions about that? If you've ever thought about it that way before, I want to push back on my interpretation. Kristen's going to turn me off. No, I think it makes sense. But um, how, how do we know that there's a shift to Jesus here, to talking about Jesus? Oh, well, it's very obvious that this gets applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus, okay. is betrayed, Jesus is betrayed by his friends here. Also, by the way, the next section, we're going to get to that. So you got to ask yeah. who he is. Remember, he is singular here. Mm-hmm. Beginning of verse six. Okay. If we keep but reading verse, it, go ahead. But verses four and five don't really give us a clue to that, right? Verses four is, and five do not give us a clue to that. Okay. Verse six is kind of an in-between here, but it's going to introduce this poetic section from verses seven through nine, which clearly are referring to Jesus. Right. And clearly referring to the death of Jesus. Right. So in that, against that context, I mean, who else could this be but Jesus? Yeah. And then, of course, the New Testament actually fills it out that way. Yeah, but that's a good question, sweetheart. Would someone read verses 7 through 9 for us? Let's get that in front of us, and we'll see how this fits together. Right? The one who received these wounds in the house of his friends, and now we have verses 7 through 9. Marissa will read. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, 
and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Thank you. So at first blush, this can almost seem a little bit out of place. I mean, it fits because it's following up with who Jesus is and what he's done. But we've moved to the future in um, um, chapter 12 through 14, primarily to the future after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And now we're going back to Christ's crucifixion, to his death. Um, But this is actually what scholars call a Janus verse, or in this case, a Janus cluster. Uh, Janus is the Roman god that can look in two directions at the same time. And what they point out is, is these verses function to look back and explain where that fountain came from, how the people were forgiven, how they're being purified, how God is creating a people who are zealous for him, right? Uh, How he's cutting off idolatry from the land. It's all through the cross and resurrection of Christ. They also look forward to chapter 14, which is going to talk about the new heavens and the new earth. And here's the critical thing to see. All of it flows from the cross, right? Everything we receive flows from who Christ is, what he has done for us in particular through the cross where he gives his life for us. So, I, you know, I asked the obvious question here, who's the shepherd in these verses? I've actually already given the answer. Um, it's Jesus. We all know it's Jesus. It's applied to Jesus in the New Testament, right? But we should not allow the fact that we know the answer is Jesus to cause us to miss out on how striking this is and how striking it must have been in uh, the 5th century BC for Zechariah and for his uh, hearers to get that God is saying he's going to strike the shepherd, right? It's the good shepherd he's striking, the one who stands next to the father. We should consider how shocking that is. Uh, One of my very favorite Old Testament scholars is a man called R. Reed Lessing. Um, Lessing points this out. If the thought of parents piercing their own son shocks us, the shock becomes a massive earthquake when we consider 13.7. Unlike the son who became a false prophet, This shepherd has done nothing wrong. The great irony of the ages is that Yahweh commands the sword to strike not only a person who is completely innocent and holy, but who also stands closest to him. That is, Yahweh commands a sword to strike um, Oh, I'm sorry. That Yahweh commands a sword to strike accents that our shepherd's suffering and death were not accidental. The events on Good Friday were simultaneously an act of God and of people. Though this does not absolve those who put Jesus to death, they were not in complete control of the situation. The disciples, the Jewish leaders, and the Romans did only what the Father willed and permitted them to do. He alone awakened the sword and commanded it to strike the shepherd. And I particularly like that first point. We are jarred when we hear about these parents who are going to pierce their own son as a false prophet. How much more dramatic it is, is it that our heavenly father would put to death his own eternally beloved son who is completely innocent? It, it's a much more dramatic event um, in so many ways. What do you think about that? 
but it's the Lord ultimately who puts Jesus to death, right? So you got two answers. It's our fault. We do it. But God also does it. It pleased the Lord to crush him, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. The dump too much on you at once with that quote from Lessing. There's a lot in there. Ray's laughing at me. That's okay. Ray, remember that laughter at my expense is still laughter. It's okay. That's why we forgive you. Thank you. Any questions at all on verse seven? Go ahead, Ray. Um, I will turn my hand against the little ones. Oh, yeah. Who is that? <laughs> I've lost on that one. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really hard to nail this down with 100% certainty. But I think what you want to do connect here is the little ones are um, not the shepherd who gets struck by the Lord for redemption, but people who were against the Lord, right? So there's going to be a consequence for them. Remember, we put Jesus to death, we're guilty, and unless Christ dies for us, we're going to bear the consequence of that. So there's a terrible consequence for the Jewish people who put Jesus to death for whom Jesus did not die. Think about um, Jesus as he goes into um, Jerusalem, and um, the women are weeping and so on. And Jesus says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, right? And for your children, because destruction is going to come upon you because of this, right? So I think that's the idea. I wouldn't be dogmatic about it. There's, there's nothing there but a little uh, phrase hanging on the end. But to me, that makes sense. Yeah, and the, and the sheep obviously were the apostles that, that scattered. Yeah, or all the people of God who get scattered, but then get regathered. Yeah, but particularly the apostles and specifically applied to them um, when they betrayed Jesus. Any other thoughts? Well, this goes into verse eight and we get more judgment here. In fact, a very severe judgment. That's why I I take the little ones there as being um, Jews for whom Christ did not die because verse eight predicts that in the whole land declares the Lord two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. So I think from America's standpoint, how much we've been marked out, well, more so when I was younger, uh, I think this is fading in um, our public imagination, uh, but how much American culture in the 50s and 60s and 70s was marked out by World War II? Uh, The United States lost 418,000 or so people in World War II. Now, compared to what China lost and what Russia lost, what the Germans lost, it wasn't that big a number, but 418,000 people dying in war is a lot of people. I mean, I don't know, it's a third of the population of New Hampshire, maybe a little bit more than that. So it's a lot of people, and it really marked us down. But imagine losing two-thirds of your population in a single conflict. It's really kind of unthinkable. We we realize just how extraordinarily marked out Russia was by losing 20 million people. Uh, And China lost about 20 million people too in the war, mostly through disease and famine. Uh, They did lose a couple million in combat. Um, 
what would it mean to lose two thirds of your population? And, and when does this take place? Now, in my judgment, the best reading is this is um, 70 AD. This is in fact the destruction of Jerusalem from 66 to 77, 70 AD, uh, where the Romans just leveled Judea and Jerusalem and it's a bloodbath. And God's saying, I'm bringing the vengeance, my vengeance upon the people who killed my son when I sent him into the world, those for whom he did not die who were going to be forgiven. I think that's the most natural reading. I wouldn't want to be too dogmatic about it, but I think that makes the most sense. How about, it, it, you think you could also refer to uh, when Jesus says, you know, narrow is the gate for those who enter and broad is the, is the, the road for everybody else. So there's, a, there's been a sense in the Bible that there's going to be more people going to be condemned than going into heaven. Sometimes that the Bible gives us that implication. Um, sometimes it seems to give us the opposite implication. It's really hard to figure it out. B.B. Uh, Warfield quite famously pointed out with the parable of the wheat and the tares, um, that at the end of the age, we're going to realize that it was a wheat field and not a tear field. And he suggests that God will ultimately save most people. I don't know. I, my own view is, when you do eschatology, is God doesn't try to answer all our questions. But Ray, I don't think that's what's in view here. I think this is a particular judgment upon a particular people. Um, and I, I think it fits most naturally. So you can say that's a parallel truth that God is going to sift people throughout history. Um, but I think this is probably the destruction of the Jews in 70 AD who were unfaithful to Jesus, who never believed in him, who did not repent, and God does bring this judgment. If you look at the Olivet Discourse in the um, Synoptic Gospels, uh, I think that'll fit together pretty well. I'll get there in about uh, 14, 15 months, Lord willing, as we head into Matthew starting in August, maybe 18 months. I'm kind of long-winded. Um, of course, that leaves a third of the people. Two-thirds get destroyed, but not all the Jews get destroyed in 70 AD. Right? Two-thirds get destroyed, but a third goes on to live. What we shouldn't miss is that the other third, those who are left alive, are not left to live on easy street. Right? Like God wipes out two-thirds and then goes, eh, I'm done. Uh, rather, well, look at verse 9 with me. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Could just refer to Christians in general. Um, the Apostle Paul, after all, I think it's Acts 14, but I'm not 100% sure, um, says that um, through many tribulations will enter the kingdom of God. Right? God does refine his people through hardship. So that's certainly one of the plausible ways of thinking about this if we simply take verse 9 as a general principle. On the other hand, I think this also works really well if we see it referring to Jewish people. Um, the people of Jerusalem and Judea are devastated in 70 AD. Huge slaughter of the population. It's just horrible. One of the most horrible things that ever happens. In fact, the description of it is um, a judgment so severe 
that there was never one like it before, never one as bad afterwards. Uh, that may just be a figure of speech, but it actually fits pretty well with the history of it. Uh, but what happens to the Jews who don't get killed and who don't convert to Christianity yet? Well, it turns out that for the last 2,000 years, Jews have been beaten up from one country to another. They've been expunged. They've been persecuted. They've been hated. Uh, we get to the 20th century. We have the Nazis with the final solution wanting to kill them all. Um, I think of a, a, an old folk song that kind of the tagline was about different people being prejudiced against different people. But the end of the tagline was, but everybody hates the Jews. And um, uh, that's actually just been the history of the Jewish people in the world as a people that has suffered extraordinary persecution. In fact, in my judgment, one of the shocking things to me is to see uh, the rise of anti-Semitism across Europe once again. Um, you like want to go, that didn't take that long. Um, so what does that mean? Well, if we're talking about ethnically Jewish people, um, it's true that the people, the ethnically Jewish people throughout history are terribly persecuted. And yet, when the Lord converts the mass of these Jews in the future, my interpretation, not infallible, the Lord will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God, right? That covenantal language. God is saying, if, if I'm right, I still have a plan for the ethnically Jewish people who are going to suffer terribly for all these years, but I'm going to convert a mass of them close to Christ's second coming. Well, if you take it that way, we get really three conclusions. Jesus died to cleanse us from sins, guilt, and power. Jesus died to create a people who are zealous for God's glory. And Jesus died to give us a future and a hope. Because, of course, this future and the hope of uh, God saying, I will be their God and he will be my people. I think it applies here to this narrow group of people. But the rest of the Bible applies it to all of us as the people of God. So I think that's really the three big things we ought to remember from this text. Uh, as I said this past Sunday, the Lord does not call us to lives of ease. He calls us to lives that matter, both in this present age and in the future, right, for all eternity. Any thoughts or questions on this chapter before we wrap it up tonight? It's about time for us to close. But any last thoughts? Next week, we get to the New Jerusalem. It's kind of beautiful. You'll like it there. Not too hard to interpret. <laughs> This is nothing profound. I just wanted to let you know that in this congregation that we're in right now, there's a little boy named Phineas. Oh, that's cool. So just keep him away from Spears. Anything else? Um, next week, we'll finish our study of the most difficult book to interpret in the entire Bible, but I hope you've learned something from it, and it's been encouraging to you. Um, do remember, when you look at this, these last three chapters, the fact that it was all future to Zechariah, and you don't have to agree with me about whether it's the church or whether it's ethnic Jews or so on. The big principles are all still there, right? God is cleansing his people. He's forgiving his people. He is sanctifying his people. He's creating people zealous for his name, and he's giving us a future and a hope. 
And then we're gonna have a week off because we have our monthly Bible studies and we will come back and do uh, the classic book by R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God. So Lord willing, I'll see you all then. Uh, let me stop here and we'll pray together.